Hello and welcome to the Education Policy Podcast for England from Voice Community. In this episode, we update you on all things COVID and we look at teacher pay and initial teacher training in the here and now. In your working life, we interview Ben Richards on what it's like to become a workplace rep and we bust those differentiation myths. Hello and welcome along once more to the Education Policy Podcast for England. Uh, it's January 2022, so we hope everyone had a great Christmas, uh, New Year, and have settled into uh, the routines of, of being back at work, whether you're in a nursery or a school, uh, for the new year. So, as Martin said a few minutes ago, we're going to go straight into the here and now, and we're going to look at, once more, COVID updates. I think before Christmas, Martin, we did say one day, one day in the future, we'll do a podcast where we don't mention COVID, but still... That's not today. Yeah, sadly, COVID is still dominating the education news. High levels of staff absence have been one of the uh, things that have been causing you issues and concerns. And at one point, staff national absence was almost 10%, with one in 12 teachers off with COVID. A number of people have been contacting us to find out what it is that they can do. How can they stay safe at work? Pretty much, I want to wind us right back to when all of the pandemic uh, first began. March 2020. Yeah, wind us back to March 2020 and look at what it was that we advised members to do then and to see whether that advice still holds up. Yes, so we we did release a statement about this, uh, didn't we, Martin, Um, on um, the 19th of January. Um, And I think our main point really of this statement was if having masks can prevent any child or adult, you know, any of our members, any teacher, any nursery nurse, from getting coronavirus, potentially being particularly ill with it, then surely we keep them for the time being. So so our statement was, these mitigations being removed while the Omicron variant is still widespread in society and it seems without any thought being given to how schools will maintain pupil and staff safety. Not all early years settings have received CO2 monitors yet. It's important that a health and safety review is taken in schools of air quality and if there are issues with air quality, schools should have the support from the government to be able to rectify it. Special schools have been issued with air purifiers, but there are not enough for all mainstream schools and they are not yet dispatched. Staff need to feel safe at work. And this is, this is something that we've discussed. It, it seems daft to me if the aim is to keep schools open to remove any support that may help to keep them open. Like, if face coverage is going to help prevent the spread, keep them for a short while, and let's make sure that schools can remain open, pupils can remain in school, because we know that's something that's been said a lot, that is the best place for them, the safest place for them, and schools can uh, provide you know that safe space for them and continue their education. We do understand, obviously, that if face coverings are being removed in the general population and they're no longer required in pubs or in shops, then it's going to be difficult to require them still in places of education. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. That doesn't mean that if staff or indeed if pupils wanted to keep face coverings, they should They shouldn't have that opportunity. And so we would encourage anybody that would like to continue to wear a face covering to raise this with your head teacher. Please be assured that Voice Community still supports you if you were to choose to wear a face covering in your place of work as long as it does not cause detriment to any of the children that you're working with. Yes, let's move on to uh, CO2 monitors then if we can. Um, 
I'm aware of some places that aren't perhaps reading them properly. Surely, uh, and, and I would have thought clearly, the best way to read these monitors is um, in the immediate moment that you're in. You know, if it goes above a certain number, then you need to take action. Some places appear to be taking an average throughout the day, including from times where there's no one, no one in the classroom. That can't be right, can it? It depends on the particular CO2 monitors. Some of them have got history, um, so you can look back at various different points. They can average the day. Um, but yes, you're quite right. The he Health and Safety Executive have issued some guidance on how CO2 should be recorded. First of all, it's important to make sure that the device itself is placed in a good central location, set up at head height for seated children and kept well away from windows and doors and places where um, you know fresh air might be coming in. It's also important to position them over 50 centimetres away from people um, because your breath contains CO2, so that could artificially inflate readings. It's also worth trying out several locations around the classroom to make sure that they are representative of the room. It's also important to calibrate your device before you start using it. Get it used to what is the level, the background level of CO2 in that space. To explain what the readings might mean, the health and safety executive suggests that 400 parts per million is a very well ventilated space and that is often the background CO2 reading in an urban environment. 800 parts per million is a well ventilated space. Anything above 800 parts per million obviously indicates that ventilation is worsening and by the time you get to 1200 parts per million action needs to be taken to improve ventilation. Now, we've said on this podcast before that you shouldn't wait until 1,200 parts per million before you take action. As soon as you see those readings over 800, you need to be thinking about what it is that can be done to improve ventilation. For example, opening a window or opening a door to improve the airflow or indeed introducing an air purifying device. Well, that's, that's, that's very good of you, Martin, to lead us nicely onto the next thing we want to talk about, which is air purifiers. So air purifiers need to have replaceable HEPA filters that are good enough to remove viruses from the air. Yeah. What, what evidence is there um, that indicates clean air has any educational or health benefit such as you know, whatever it might be. So in 2015, so long before the pandemic had even been imagined, uh, a Los Angeles school had an emergency. They had a gas leak at one of their schools. Um, and this led to the county using filters and air purifiers in every classroom whilst uh, they removed, obviously, the toxins from the air. When they did this, um, not only did it have a, a positive impact on the air quality, but student test scores went up and they went up a lot. Students' test scores went up and they stayed up. Performance, stamina and focus were all improved and teachers noticed that children's behaviour was better in classrooms as well. So higher test scores, improved performance and a better learning environment are the benefits of having air purifiers in the classroom. And as I said, this is not a recent um, study. This is something which has been evidenced long before the pandemic. However, the government have recently in the last 12 months been undertaking their own study in association with uh, the UK Health Security Agency and Leeds University um, 
to look at the impact of different types of air filters in schools in Bradford. And so we're hoping that we'll be able to get some feedback from that study soon. So at the start of all this, uh, Martin, you said you wanted to take us all back on a nostalgic trip to March 2020. We haven't been there yet. What did you want to say about that? So in March 2020, our advice was that schools, early year settings, further education colleges needed to have a robust risk assessment. A risk assessment that looked at all the issues and tried to find ways to mitigate them. That is still excellent advice. Even outside of a pandemic, having a robust risk assessment that is regularly reviewed to address and identify um, any problems and try and find mitigations, ways to solve those problems. That is a really good way of approaching any sort of problem. Other things that staff can do, again, we discussed this way back in March 2020, make sure that you encourage staff and students to do regular hand washing. Make sure that there is proper cleaning happening in the school, particularly of touch points and surfaces that are uh, regularly used by pupils, such as the backs of chairs and desks. And wherever possible, aim for improved ventilation. Those, those things pretty much should help workplaces to remain as safe as possible. It's amazing actually how many calls we take from members um, where the answer ends up, but not just on coronavirus queries, but where the answer ends up being, well, have you seen the risk assessment? You know, whether it's to do with maternity, whether it's to do with loan working with uh, vulnerable children or children with uh, behaviour difficulties and so on. You know, if you're, at, if you're at any workplace, should have a risk assessment that covers the specifics of your work environment and the job you do. And that includes now on coronavirus. So make sure it's there, make yourself familiar with it, as Martin says, and make sure it's being implemented properly. Moving on from coronavirus, finally. Initial teacher training, Martin, you've been in a meeting recently with the Department for Education on this. What was your meeting about? The DfE, who have been introducing a new initial teacher training programme, members have fed back to us and to other unions that there have been issues with increases of workload, both for the students and the mentors and the people working in schools providing that initial teachers training support. But also um, students have been finding difficulty getting placements because of course the difficulties of getting into a school, the restrictions, people having to self-isolate and all those things. We're continuing to meet the DfE um, to discuss these issues. So members, if they've got any feedback that they would like to give us, maybe they are a student, maybe they are a mentor, maybe they are working in a school that has had an awful lot of restrictions that have affected initial teacher training then please do get in touch with us on educationpolicy at community-tu.org and we'll use that information in, a, in an anonymous sense we'll use that information uh, to help us in our discussions with the department for education yeah absolutely as we always say we are a member-led organisation. We want to hear from members and help us to uh, direct our policy um, and the direction of the union. But also, we want to hear from you on this podcast. So if there's anything, and I'm sure I'll say this again at the end, if there's anything you want to hear us talk about or comment on this week's podcast uh, or previous month's podcast, then please do get in touch on that same email address and we'll give you the, the socials stuff at the end. Briefly, Martin, touching on teacher pay, just just where are we at, at the moment in this point in the year? We submit evidence to the school teachers review body every year and it's that time of year again when we're preparing our evidence. So if members have got anything that they would like us to comment on, maybe you're wondering whether teachers should get a pay rise and how much that should be. Maybe you've thought that there are other changes that are worth making to teachers' terms and conditions such as additional PPA time or 
Are there any problems with demands when you've moved through the threshold? Get in touch. Again, that same email address, educationpolicy at community-tu.org, and we can use that information when we make our submission. So moving on to uh, your working life. And in this section this month, we've got a special guest. You might remember that back in May of last year, 2021, we had Letitia McCalla, our early years specialist on for us. And that actually turned out to be our, our most popular episode of all of 2021. So we wanted to do more guests this year and hopefully we'll have a few more in the coming months. But this month, we've got Ben Richards on. Now, Ben is an education organiser, but I'm going to throw over to him so he can explain what that means. Hi, Bo. Thanks for having me. Uh, fantastic to be involved today. My name is Ben Richards. I'm an education organiser and I work for Community. I'm based in Cardiff, South Wales. Really, my job's one of a kind. So I work within the education department at Community looking at rep training and how we develop our reps and give them the skills they need to be effective within either the workplace, the education sector, um, or all the sectors that we actually work with. So I'm the only full-time education organiser in community, and it means I'm involved in the delivery of training, as well as the planning, the preparation, the organisation, and also sort of things like communication with our members around that as well. So I work vastly within the education department, but I am based in Cardiff, Wales as well. Brilliant. I thought I thought I detected a little accent there, Ben. So um, yeah, it's a Wales, Wales it is, Cardiff. Right. Um, so I know this is an education policy podcast. Um, mostly what we talk about is policies in school or policies um, nationally for education. But reps are important to us. You know, as a trade union, they're important to us, but they're also important to us for policy as well, because realistically, without and we say this all the time, don't we, on the podcast, but without the feedback from schools, from workplaces, nurseries, and so on and so forth. That's what drives our policy forward. So it's those people who are acting as workplace representatives in schools, in nurseries, in universities, across the country that help us with that policy. So we we do need them, and we we need them as well, making sure that um, workplaces are sticking to their policies in the workplace and they can hold their employers to account. There's loads of benefits to people to having a rep or even being a rep in the workplace and so so I know when I started out as a workplace rep before I got my job with uh, with voice and obviously later on voice voice joined community we had a really good relationship with our head teacher and we were able to uh, bring about some uh, small changes or, or stop small changes from happening if we thought they were going to be a big deal um, and we've obviously dealt with reps across the country now as well who have um, in, uh, concerns about new policies coming in and so on and so forth. So it is really important that we get these people, you know, volunteering for us and then get them well trained. So what kind of training is actually available to people? Does it come in stages? How long is it? Where do we do it across the country? You know, Well, over the last few years, actually, Communities Education Department has undergone massive change. So we have kept very traditional sort of your stage one and stage two training, which would be familiar to most trade unionists. And that is an introduction course, and obviously stage two being an, an advanced course. Now, in reference to the education sector specifically, we are working even more flexibly than we ever have before. So as well as delivering these in person, we actually have these courses available online, which I think relevant to this podcast is a real benefit to our members in education because of obviously the working hours that, that you guys deal with um, and the flexibility that that learning therefore allows you. So we do have the generic stage one and stage two that most people will be familiar with and that really equips you with the skills 
and the sort of tips and tricks and the knowledge base to really make, you know, be an effective rep within your school or workplace. So we have that generic standardized training. But what we've done is we've really tweaked that to community's core ethos and values. And by bringing the training in-house rather than us using the TUC, for example, that's allowed us to really tailor our training to be more specific for community reps rather than general trade union representatives. But just to add to that, this year we've implemented some new training courses. So we have additional courses such as a branch secretary course, which again, for existing or interested branch secretaries, it really gives them that core set of skills needed to undertake the role to the best of its ability. And we also have other training courses available that are brand new as well, such as the negotiations course, which is for advanced or senior reps. And it really looks at that theory behind negotiating and how that can be implemented into the role of a workplace rep. So, so I should say here that this, this training that you're talking about, Ben, is different from the, the courses that Martin and I have talked about on previous podcasts, which is more to do with professional development. So let's take the stage one course you talk about, for example. Is that like a, a beginner's, like an, in, an introduction? Yeah, yeah pretty basically. much. And, and so how many, how many days does that take to complete that course then? The introduction course is three days, and that can be delivered flexibly. So, you know, depending on what you need specific to your sector or workplace, that could be three days consecutively. It could be one day each Monday for three weeks, for example. And again, that can be delivered in person and online. And we're trying to really use that blended learning approach to make sure we reach as many people as possible for those who can't attend physical training as well. That's going to be really important for, for our education in early years, members, isn't it, as, we, as we've seen in the past, because I'm an education officer, so we've done some training together, and um, we have found in the past that it can be difficult for people to, to, to find that time off work, but what, what, what we've done that since then is, you know, we offer different ways of doing that training, like you say, and, and actually, we'd be flexible, you know, further than we are being, wouldn't we, really, if people came to us and, and said they wanted it over weekends or evenings and so on and so forth, we, we'd be flexible with that. Um, how much does it cost for our members to, 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 to attend that training? Nothing. It, it's completely free, whether that be online or in person. Um, we will cover, you know, travel costs, for example, so that our members are not out of pocket. If you attend a residential training course, um, meals are provided, accommodations provided. You know, but again, our aim is to not make members out of pocket. It's to make the process as smooth and as easy and simple for our members to attend and not be damaged in their pockets by attending our training. Again, obviously, if it was online, then that obviously is cost-effective and will not cost a member anything to attend either. So kind of per year, how often do these introductory courses sort of take place? They take place every quarter. So we'll be looking to run at least an introduction course every quarter. And again, for the education members, we are flexible with this, whether this be weekends, evenings, if, if you would prefer it in the weekdays, it can be half terms. So again, really, guys, we're looking for your feedback on when you would like this training to occur. And the more people that we get to let us know this, the more we can actually meet those needs of, of you guys in the education sector. There is, I think, sometimes uh, voice community members who are the only member in their workplace. Clearly, we'd like there to, to be more. If they're the only member, they can still become a rep, right? Of course they can. And actually... They're probably, you know, some of the best people we want to capture in this. Those individuals who are showing a keen interest and would like to be a rep, whether or not you're a single member or you have several members in one workplace, those individuals who can work with us to really promote 
and push the visibility of what we're trying to do. You know, with policies for education, for example, and the good work you and Martin do, you know, promoting that on this podcast, the more reps we have involved, the more representative we are of these workforces and schools and education settings. So I think it's important as many people as possible get involved because the only way we can be representative is by actually having you involved and representing that education sector, school or learning facility. So on these courses, is one of the things they'll cover how to recruit other members? Yeah, we look at providing reps with the skill set needed to go out there, recruit members, retain those members as well. Because as we know, for any trade union, that is our lifeblood. You know, that is what, our membership is what leads what we do and it's what keeps us going. So it will definitely give you the skills to be able to recruit members, have those difficult conversations about reasons why people might not want to join or maybe why they're leaving. So all those skills are covered on the course. So one of the other options beyond workplace reps uh, that might be particularly um, interesting to uh, voice members of community is the role of a uh, a roving rep, which is what community uh, have always called it, and a field officer is what voice have always called it. But essentially, we're talking about the same thing. Um, so, what sort of what's the role of a roving rep, and what kind of training is available for them? So, a roving rep slash field officer in the education language, their main role is to is to go out to a variety of workplaces and represent individual members. So it's to work closely with their full-time officials like yourself, for example, Rob, and to pick up cases as and when required and go and represent individual members from within their sector in their locality. Again, this is more of a specific role for somebody who's really interested in representing members and would like to do more of that. And we do offer specific training for this role. We have a, a roving reps course slash field officer, which will be running in March, actually. So if anybody thinks that this role is something they may be interested in, please let us know and we can provide you with more information on, on that course. So we've just touched on two of the many, many ways that people can be involved um, with, with the union. And what I would say is if you're interested in being involved at all, please do get in touch with us. You can get in touch with your local officer for where for the region you're living in the country. But if, if you can't find that, then you can just email the education policy um, email address that Martin's already given you and that we'll give you again. So you can contact us on that and, and that'll, that'll make its way to me so we can look at um, getting you involved. Or you can call us and make your interest uh, known to us that way as well. As I said, there are loads of ways to be involved. I know, um, Martin, that you're um, interested in setting up some focus groups for policy in the coming weeks and months. There are always a number of issues that are affecting the union nationally and locally on matters of policy. And if there are people who are particularly interested in supporting the work that we do in policy, I'd really encourage them to get involved, to let us know that they want to be part of this. And we're hoping to set up some focus groups on a whole range of topics. So look out for that in the sectoral newsletters and also in the forthcoming Your Voice magazine. So thanks for joining us, uh, Ben. Re much appreciated for sharing uh, an insight into what kind of training is available. Hope uh, you've enjoyed it a little bit uh, joining us today. And as I said before, we will try and get uh, more people on the podcast in coming weeks. Thank you very much for having me, guys. So it's that time of the episode again. Thankfully, we've reached everyone's favourite bit. It is time to bust some myths. Boom! And this month, for the start of 2022, 
we are busting some myths on differentiation. So this applies to anybody. It doesn't just apply to teachers. I think that would be a misconception in this case. It applies to teaching assistants. It applies to people working in early years as well. So here's the myth. For every lesson that you plan, you need to differentiate the tasks for every single student in the class and you must have that evidenced in your planning pack. Now, now bear, bear in mind, we have covered lesson planning for Ofsted before, so I'm not suggesting that anyone should do a pack, but that's often where we're at. So my, the, the, bit, the myth is, once more, it is that for every lesson that you plan, you need to differentiate for every single child. I'm going to start exactly with that, with lesson planning, which you're absolutely right, we have looked at before. And just to make it clear that Ofsted do not expect a written lesson plan. So nobody should be required to produce written evidence of any planning, and that includes differentiation for the purposes of Ofsted. Perhaps it might be a good idea, actually, before we go any further, to just make sure everyone's aware of what differentiation is. So differentiation is when you are taking the tasks that you intend to doing with your children in that lesson that day and you are adapting them or altering them slightly in some way to make sure that there is something there for everyone's, quote, sort of ability, right? Yeah, children work at different rates. They have different skills. They have different abilities. And, of course, this needs to be taken into account when, when you plan lessons, when you plan tasks and activities. The varied starting points the, uh, and, and, and abilities, they do need to be catered for. They need to be planned for and, and support needs to be put in place wherever that's necessary. Yeah. My point was that Ofsted particularly, don't demand that that is put in writing. Right. I'm not saying for a moment that this planning should not take place. Knowing what you're doing, knowing where you've come from and knowing where you're going are absolutely essential aspects of the teachers, of the early years practitioner's role, of the uh, tutor, of the lecturer's role. And the teacher standards actually sets out three aspects about planning, particularly taking into account the different abilities of the children that you're working with. So first of all, teacher standard one, which is set high expectations, which inspire, motivate and challenge pupils, says that teachers should set goals that stretch and challenge pupils of all backgrounds, abilities and dispositions. Uh -huh. So straight away, right at the beginning of the teacher standards, it is telling you that you need to take account of these different children. Teacher standard two, which is all about promoting good progress and outcomes, goes on to say that you need to be aware of pupil abilities and their prior knowledge and you need to plan teaching to build on these. Again, making sure that you know where the pupils have come from, the learning that has already taken place and where it is going to go next. Jumping a few now, teacher standard five says that teachers should adapt teaching to respond to the strengths and needs of all pupils. And there's a number of bullet points under standard five, such as knowing when and how to differentiate appropriately, have a secure understanding of how um, different factors can stop pupils from learning and how to overcome these, um, being aware of the physical, social and intellectual needs of the children and adapt teaching to take account of that and also have a clear understanding of the needs of special educational needs pupils and their particular needs. So the teacher standard is full of the requirements for teachers to differentiate and adapt their learning to meet the needs of the children that they are working with. Excellent. So I did mention at the start 
that teaching assistants and so on may have a role to play in this. What role do they play? It's important that we make clear at this point that TAs are not actually employed to teach in a technical and legal sense. The statutory instrument, which is the piece of legislation which directs what teachers and TAs can do, state that TAs should work under the supervision of a qualified teacher. HLTAs can work with more remote supervision and so they can undertake greater responsibilities due to their additional training. And so TAs should be directed by teachers to provide small group support and help. And many TAs are actually directly employed for this kind of work. In fact, they specially trained in SEND support and so sometimes are better at providing this support than the teacher themselves would be. Our advice to TAs, HLTAs and teachers is that they should work together to provide the best support for those children. Now, we'll come on to Ofsted on this. Now, now I know that a former um, Ofsted myth-busting document set of differentiation that inspectors don't expect work and tasks in all lessons to be tailored to meet each student's individual abilities. It's an unrealistic expectation. However, teachers should make sure that all students have opportunities to fulfil their potential, regardless of their starting points or abilities. Inspectors will expect to see evidence of this throughout the course. I think that's quite an important phrase there. Now, now that I've just quoted from, that document was actually withdrawn in September 2019. So whilst it's probably still useful, may not be the most up-to-date guidance. So where, where are they at now with it? The latest guidance, believe it or not, does not make any reference to differentiation at all. But as we've discussed with the teacher standards, it does refer throughout to making sure that teachers identify where pupils are at and what they need to do. For example, it says that Ofsted should focus on how subject leaders and teachers have identified pupils' learning gaps and new starting points and how they have responded to that in their planning. But it goes on to say that Ofsted will not advocate a particular method of planning, including lesson planning, teaching or assessment, and it's up to schools to determine their practices, and it's up to leadership teams to justify these on their own merits, rather than using the Ofsted handbook. Ofsted will not dictate how planning should be set out, the length of time it should take, nor the amount of detail it should contain. All of those details are down to the school. So a bit like marking, remember when we busted the marking myths, the answer, one of the key points there was that Ofsted don't uh, expect a certain type of marking. Really, it's down to the school to have a assessment policy. So similarly here, there may be a lesson planning policy, there may be a differentiation policy that the school follows. And as a teacher, you should follow that policy because not doing so would be... That's absolutely right, yeah. Schools are allowed to have policies. They may not be necessary, Let's be honest, teachers are education professionals, early year staff are professionals, they are trained and qualified in what they're doing and having a policy to set out what should be seen in planning might not be necessary. However, if your school, if your setting does have a planning policy, then you are required to follow it because it is a reasonable expectation. And the other thing I I feel like it may be important to say here is that research and and thinking on these kind of subjects changes over time. It shouldn't be that schools have a policy and they stick to it for 10 years. You know, it's maybe something that needs revisiting. And if you feel like as a, a you know, education professional that there may be a new or better way of perhaps doing things and trying things, speak with your school about trying that and doing that and, and see if you can improve the, the way that your, your setting does things. Absolutely. The bottom line is 
it's important to ensure that our children's needs are met using all of the tools and resources that are available to support learning and progress, because ultimately that is how the school will be judged. And on that note, you've busted another myth. So that's all for another month on the Education Policy Podcast. We will be back next month. Um, but before we go, we need to remind you of the ways that you can find us. So you can find us on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash community union. You can also follow Voice Community on Twitter and Instagram or visit our website for news, shared content and resources, including the Help Centre, where you can find lots of information to help you and answer many questions that you might have. If you are a member and you need advice or casework support, please contact your regional officer or you can call the duty officer on... 01332-372-337. And don't forget to like and subscribe, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the Education Policy Podcast. <laughs>